Well, I invite you to open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. While you're doing that, let me uh, make mention of several of you have filled out cards. Some of you have come and talked to me about uh, a new members class, and we'll be doing that in the new year. And so we invite you to fill out a card if you're a visitor and been coming for a while and would like to know more about our church, uh, would like to join our church, become a member, and learn why that's important, you can join that class. It'll be meeting on Sunday evenings. You'll have more details soon um, in relation to that. Well, this morning, and given this will become obviously our Thanksgiving service sermon, Uh, From Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 to 6, hear now the word of the Lord. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Our Father, we ask now that you would do a, and continue to do that good work in our hearts, conforming us to the image of your Son as we hear your word proclaimed. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of Paul's earliest letters, we know, at least we think Galatians was probably where first, but one of his earliest letters, pretty close to that, is The letter to 1 Thessalonians, written around 50 or 51 A.D., most scholars say. And that letter was written because the church in Thessalonica was facing severe persecution or trials, you would say. And in the midst of those trials, Paul wanted to communicate to them. And so he writes this, and this is how he concludes his letter. Uh, It's the verse that I read at the Meal of Thanks. It says, verse 16, chapter 5, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And so that was Paul's words. Here they are facing severe trials, and he says, give thanks in all circumstances. Well, now it's some 13 years later. Paul is writing from prison. And his letter to the Philippians is clear evidence that Paul practiced what he preached. He thanks his God always in every prayer with joy. He rejoices always. He's in prison. He rejoices always. He prays always. He gives thanks always. Now, see, that was the will of God for the Thessalonians in their severe affliction. It's the will of God for Paul in prison, and it is the will of God for us. Give thanks to God with joy always. And that's what we find in our passage this morning. Paul is writing this letter of Philippians, and we'll probably go through the book of Philippians uh, soon, Um, maybe not right away, but we'll go through the book of Philippians verse by verse. But Paul's writing this letter of, uh, of friendship, you could say. He begins his letter almost as he begins every letter of his, thanking God for those to whom he is writing. That's how he begins his letters. Not all of them are like that, uh, but most are. Consider them. In Romans, he begins this way, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Uh, In 1 Corinthians, he says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. 
In Ephesians, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Colossians, we always thank God, the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Philemon, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. First Thessalonians, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Second Thessalonians, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because of your faith is growing abundantly. Second Timothy, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. And so it is with the Philippians. I thank my God. I, I thank my God over and over. I thank my God when I pray for you. I thank my God. But here there's something distinct to the Philippians. Oh, he thanks God for them. But Paul's relationship with the Philippians uh, church was a special one. It was a special one. He has a, he has a deep love and affection for them, unlike any other church. See, they stood by his side through uh, thick and thin. They supported him financially. They shared in his sufferings. And so for the Philippians, he gives thanks to his God always in every prayer with joy. Paul's actually stumbling over his words. He, all, always, every, all. And then he adds that ending there that is not found elsewhere. Uh, uh, he ends with this joy in his thanksgiving. Uh, apart from every other Pauline epistle, that's what we find here. See, more than any other church, the Philippians fill Paul's heart with this uncontainable joy. In fact, the, the awkward word order points this out. In the Greek, the phrase, we don't interpret it or translate it this way because this is not how we read, but in the Greek it says, with joy, the prayer making. And, and what's the point there? In the Greek, it's putting the words joy first to make that the emphasis. It's, it's joy he is feeling. It's joy that he feels when he gives thanks for the Philippians. This is why he calls the Philippians his joy in crown in chapter 4, verse 1. Every time he thinks of them, he could not help but turn to God and joyfully give thanks. And the reason for that joy in the midst of his thankfulness for the Philippians, the reason for it is found in our verses this morning. Uh, there are three reasons that are given, and we're going to look at those. The first one's found in verse 3, because of the Philippians' active commitment to the gospel. That's why he joyfully gives thanks. The second is found in verse 5, because of the Philippians' active fellowship in the gospel. And then third, in verse 6, because of the Philippians' active preservation in the gospel. So their active commitment, their active fellowship, and their active preservation in the gospel. They're the grounds upon which he places his thanksgiving for the Philippians. And we're going to look at each. First, now Paul gives thanks to God with joy because of the Philippians' active commitment to the gospel. Look at verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Now, this passage is actually difficult to translate. 
Um, and because the language is ambiguous, as scholars say. What do I mean by that? It, uh, it can mean two different things, really, when it's translated. And both are legitimate translations. We have the ESV translation and actually most of the Bible's translations. It says, in all my remembrance of you. Um, and that's how we have it translated. But it could also be translated because of your remembrance of me. Uh, and the commentators are split on how to interpret it. And I think, after reading them, that he means because of your remembrance of me. Basically, Paul is thanking God for the Philippians remembering him so affectionately that they would send funds to support him. However, it goes much deeper than the money. He's not writing this, boy, they gave me money, let me write a letter on thankfulness. Paul is thankful not so much that the Philippians gave him a financial gift, but because of their interest in him, that's demonstrated how? Through the gift. Because of their interest in him, reflected, reflects their active commitment to the gospel. He see, he's more concerned about their spiritual growth than any financial gift. That's what we need to understand. Uh, any gift that they may have um, given to him. He says this in chapter 4, verse 17. Not that I seek the gift. Oh, he's grateful for the gift, but he's not seeking the gift. What's he seeking? I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. See, the gift that they give financially to support Paul shows their spiritual growth. The gift displays their ongoing commitment to the gospel that Paul's proclaiming. These are gospel-centered people in Philippi, and for that, Paul gives thanks. And so maybe you could translate it this way. Because I remember you remembering me, and therefore, showing your active commitment to the gospel, I give thanks with joy. And so that is the first reason. Paul gives thanks to God with joy because of their active commitment to the gospel. Now, if you uh, know Greek and you don't interpret it that way and you're unconvinced or you actually didn't follow it all, <laughs> at least to the second reason. And the second reason is pretty clear of why Paul gives thanks with joy, because of the Philippians' act of fellowship in the gospel. Look at verse 5. Paul says, look, I give thanks to my God because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, that word partnership is a word that I've preached about here before, the word uh, koinonia. It can be translated partnership. It can be translated communion, or it can be translated fellowship. In fact, it's often translated fellowship, and that's what we looked at. For example, in Acts 2, verse 42, we read, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. In 1 John 1, 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship. Both times, these are the word koinonia, with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And so the word fellowship, as I said in previous sermons, it's kind of been watered down in our culture and, and even in our church. Uh, I have talked about it over and over, and it's watered down in the sense that what did we have Wednesday night? We had a meal of thanks. It was a meal of fellowship. We fellowshiped. 
Well, that's true, but that's not the ultimate meaning because we sat around a table together and ate food. A lot of people do that. Um, it's more than just sharing of good times. Uh, we, we talk about fellowship. We usually mean then spending time with friends. Um, and particularly maybe we would say as Christians, believers, that's fellowship. And that is to an extent. But see, fellowship in the first century meant a participating into something, something greater than the person, something greater than yourself, something with lasting, a lasting um, impact. Yeah, lasting activity than any given moment. And so fellowship is more than, well, we're not fellowshipping, we're not fellowship, and then we have carols and, and cookies. We're fellowshipping, we're not fellowshipping, we have a Bible study, we're fellowshipping. It's something that went on, um, and it was greater than the moment. The moment may help the fellowship, it may enhance it, but it was greater than that. One writer put it this way, the heart of true fellowship is self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. See, for Paul, fellowship has to do with being caught up into a partnership that was created by God. And, and, and in particular, in our passage, it's fellowship in the gospel, partnership in the gospel, or you could say partnership in Christ. And so for Paul, Christian fellowship is this self-sacrificing Conformity to the gospel. It's, it's self-sacrificing in order to conform to Christ. See, we don't unite here because of affluence or, or because of social lines or because of politics or, or, or coffee. We may enjoy those things and we may have some unity in those areas. We may not, too. But we fellowship, and our fellowship is in the gospel. It's in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we need to understand this in a broad sense. See, it includes several things. It includes several things. It includes, uh, for the Philippians, in this context, the intercessory activity of Paul's behalf. They prayed for Paul. That was part of the fellowship. Uh, it includes the actual proclamation of the gospel to outsiders. We read about that in verses 27 and 28 of chapter 1 of Philippians. It includes their suffering alongside of Paul for the sake of the gospel. That's the fellowship they had. We read about that in, first the, in Philippians 1.30 and in, as well at the end of the book in chapter 4. And it also includes the money, the monetary gift. See, we think of fellowship, it's in prayer. We think of fellowship around a meal. We think of fellowship in proclaiming the gospel. We're going out into the world and proclaiming the gospel. But it also includes the gift. Uh, in the first century, that word fellowship had uh, a commercial overtones. Uh, when the Philippians sent money to Paul, they were entering into fellowship with him. They were partnering with him. And, and, and I think we need to understand that today, as an aside, we need to understand when we're supporting our missionaries, it's not like, oh, I'm glad those guys are over there because I don't want to do it, so let's give them some money. Uh, we're doing more than that. There's nothing wrong. If, if you just want to give some money to help a missionary, praise God, but you're doing more than that. What you're doing is you're partnering with them. You're in fellowship with them. And so, in Romans 15, Paul says this. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. 
They were pleased to do it. And so Paul's commenting on this. They were pleased to give financially. And, and, and indeed, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share, that word share comes from the root koinonia, share in their spiritual blessings, they also ought to be of service to them in material blessings. And so, the foundation is our spiritual fellowship, which is displayed through this financial fellowship. And so it was material, and it was personal, as well as spiritual. And it was ongoing, as I said. Verse 5 says, from the, from the first day until now. From the first moment they heard the gospel from the lips of the Apostle Paul until the moment of his writing, a decade or more later, they remain active partners in the advancement of the gospel, be it through witnessing, uh, through prayer, through giving financially, maybe their suffering. They shared in the same vision and the importance and the priority of the gospel. 10, 12 years of continued fellowship with Paul in these ways. See, that's true biblical Pauline fellowship. And so Paul says, I give thanks with joy to God because of the Philippians' act of fellowship in the gospel. Well, third, he gives thanks with joy for the Philippians because of God's active preservation of them. Now, look at verse 6. And I am sure this. I always look up at the clock, and I can't see the time. So I'm just teasing you to pretend I'm thinking through it, but I can't see anything. <laughs> and I am sure this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, this is Paul's ultimate ground of thanksgiving with joy. His firm conviction is based on God's faithfulness, that the one who began a good work of the new creation in you, in the lives of the Philippians in particular, will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus, Jesus' second coming. That's what it's referring to. See, where the first two reasons, right, that he gave thanks with joy was what? The activity of the Philippians. It's what they did. Here, this third reason focuses on what God does. And God began a good work, and he will bring that good work to completion. And see, the Philippians, how they fellowship with Paul, how they were active along with Paul, they couldn't have done that on their own anyway. This is why this is the ultimate point. They could never produce such participation in the gospel on their own. Such fellowship in Christ without God first working it in them, continuing to work it in them, and finally bringing to completion the good work that he began. And see, the good work here, the good work is the work of grace in the Philippians' lives that began when they first believed the gospel. It, it refers to, the good work refers to the new creation that God began in them. Their, their participation in Paul's ministry is not the good work. That, that, that's not the good work. Their financial gift is not the good work. It was the outworking of the good work. It was evidence that God was working in them, but it wasn't the good work. The good work is God's work of salvation from beginning to end. 
Now here specifically, and we've gone over God's salvation from beginning to end. We, we talked about glorification. Here we're talking about the perseverance of the saints. Some may call it the preservation of the saints. It's the doctrine that's taught throughout Scripture that the one whom God has called, the one whom God has elected, the one whom God has chosen, the one whom God has justified, all those by grace through faith will never, ever be lost. You'll never lose your salvation. God preserves us. He keeps us in the faith. And so we will persevere until the end until the day of Christ Jesus. This is what Jesus taught. In John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice and know me and they follow me. I give them eternal life. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. This is a promise from Jesus. Do you believe it? And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Do you believe you can be snatched out of the hand of Christ? Do you disagree with him? No one, he says, no one. They will never perish. You are eternally secure in the loving hands of your creator and your redeemer. But see, God didn't just save you. He didn't say, sure, I don't want them to go to hell. I'll save them and then go on. And then I'll see you when, you know, I return or you die. He saved you with a purpose. Paul says it. He who began a good work in you will bring that good work to completion. Now, the idea here carry, is carrying the idea of finishing touches, right? It, it's kind of like whittling away at you and conforming you until you look like Jesus. That's the good work. It's God daily. Hey, let me say it differently. It's not just daily. It's not just at New Year's when you make a resolution. It's not just on Sunday. It, it, minute by minute. You can go second by second. God is conforming you and working in you and helping you grow so you're more and more like Jesus. And know this, you will be more and more like Jesus tomorrow than you are today. In the process, though, he's calling you to repent of your sins, something we do on Sunday um, corporately, and then you're to do it uh, uh, throughout your days. And he transforms you into the image of his son. And it's a difficult process. We don't always like being called sinners. We don't like being, having our faults pointed out. And see, in order to grow in this process, you, you have to face how sinful you are. I have to do the same, of course. But the more you progress, actually, it's not that you feel better. <laughs> you say, man, I, I've come a long way in 10 years. I'm really terrible. I, 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 I feel worse. Dear Carson, oh, no, excuse me, Donald Gray Barnhouse, we'll get to Carson in a second. Barnhouse says, there is no Christian listening to my voice who will think as well of himself five years from now as he does this morning. That's Paul's experience. He lived his long life. I'm the chief of sinners. He got worse and worse. And so the transformation that takes place in our lives through this good work is difficult at times. And it may seem to move slowly. In fact, you may not notice it day to day. But what God purposes, he will accomplish. He will accomplish. No plan of the Lord can be thwarted. 
And what's his plan? His plan is to transform you. His plan is to conform you into the image of Christ. That's the end game. And see, it's this truth, that reality, and the lives of the Philippians that gives Paul's heart great joy. And so he gives thanks. He gives thanks because of the Philippians' act of commitment to the gospel. He gives thanks because of the Philippians' act of fellowship in the gospel. And he gives thanks because of the Philippians' act of preservation in the gospel. God is transforming them. He is conforming them into the image of Christ, and he will complete his work. And so that's why Paul gives thanks. And so let's apply what we've learned. Let's do that. I think there's an obvious uh, application here. It's thanksgiving, and it's to give thanks. It's that simple. What are you thankful for? When you go before God's throne in prayer, what is it that most often you give thanks for? Are you thankful? I paid the bills this month. Nothing wrong with that. Are you thankful that, you know, that you're, you're alive? What are you thankful for? Well, it's obvious from Paul in his letters, and that Paul teaches us that our prayers should be filled with joyful thanksgiving, and more than this, they should be filled with joyful thanksgiving for spiritual things. There's nothing wrong with being thankful that you had a fun day with your family. There's nothing wrong with that. But more and more, we must be joyfully thankful to God for Christ. We must be joyfully thankful to God for the gospel. We must be joyfully thankful to God for the advancement of the gospel, for the, for the active commitment of one another in the gospel, for the fellowship we have in the gospel, for the support of other Christians in gospel work. He's thankful for that. He's joyfully thankful. And he, over and over he says it, for the active preservation of the saints and the gospel. That's you and us. We will persevere till the end because of Christ. We should be thankful. We should be thankful that he's conforming us moment by moment into the image of Christ. Here's what James Boyce says. One of the standards by which you can measure your maturity in prayer is the amount of time you spend rejoicing in him and thanking him for the spiritual blessings he has given you in Christ. For the spiritual blessings. You know, it may be hard at times for you to even wake up in the morning. And you look at the world around you and the things that are going on and maybe things that are going on in your heart right now I don't know of, and you say, I barely have the will to get up. But there are certain things that no matter how you're feeling, no matter what's going on out there, that are always true. And Paul is saying, give thanks for that. You will not lose your salvation. God will not give up on you. Give thanks for those things, for your brothers in Christ, for the gospel message. That's one application. Well, here's the second application. It's to understand the central role of fellowship in the gospel and how how that plays out in your life. D.A. Carson said this, we must put the fellowship of the gospel at the center of our relationships. So what does that mean? It means in our conversations, we ought regularly to be sharing in the gospel. That is, delighting in God together, um, uh, sharing with one another what we've been learning from the Word of God. Have you ever been with someone like that? 
Oh, you got to hear what you got to hear what I learned this morning. And they read a verse that you maybe memorized 20 years ago and you've known it and you've known it. And, and, and they've been a Christian just as long, but they're reading the word and they say, oh, I got to share. This was this is great. And what God's speaking to their heart, we need to do that. It needs to be the center of our fellowship and our relationships, sharing with one another what we learn, joining in prayer, joining in prayer for the advancement of the gospel, interceding for those we have been witnessing to, calling up a brother or sister and saying, I just, I just had a conversation with my neighbor, and boy, they're out there, <laughs> but I got to share the gospel with them. Can we pray? It doesn't mean you can't just get together, watch football, and eat pretzels. You can do that. You don't have to. It doesn't have to be a Bible study. If you want to go watch football, watch football. You don't have to make it into a football Bible study. Enjoy football. But the majority of your time with believers should be sharing in some way with this message of the gospel, sharing the gospel and, and thanking the Lord for those around the world who, who believe the gospel, this sacrificial love that we have in Christ together, sharing about that. And then... See, if you're looking for true fellowship, then, then share the gospel at home. Share it around the world. Support our missionaries. Serve with other believers in children's ministry. You know, open up your home for a life group, uh, you know, for, for a Bible study maybe, those type of things. Partner. Partner with our missionaries. Take the, 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 the prayer ornaments and, and, and pray for them. You'd be sharing in fellowship with them halfway around the world for some of them. And so pray for them. Support them financially. Send them a letter. Thank them that you get to join in their labor of love in the gospel. See, when we do those type of things, it's more than just getting along in church. I know some of those seem so common. You know, we pray for one another. We tell people about Jesus. But they're, they're actually participating together in gospel fellowship. We're entering into partnership with one another for the spread of the gospel. And the point is simple. The gospel must come first in our relationships. Third, if God has begun a good work in you, if you have been born again, then you do not need to fear being lost. Your confidence is not found in yourself. Your confidence is not found in how well you fellowship even, uh, how, how well you partner. It's not found in your faith. It's not found in your spiritual successes. All those are important, believe me. It's not even found in your prayer life. That's a wonderful thing to see as I look at you and say, man, that person prays, that person's fellowshipping, that person worships, that person shares the gospel. They're wonderful things, but that's not where your confidence is found. Where is it found? It's found in God and what he has done. It's he who calls you, he who sustains you, and he who will lead you home in the end. That's the promise of Scripture. You can be confident, and you may see very little of it in your life right now, but you can be confident that God will continue to do His work in your heart, in your mind, in your life, so that tomorrow, as I said earlier, tomorrow you'll be more like Jesus than you are today. That's the promise. And so stop fighting him. Begin to work out what God has worked in you. Repent. 
and, and seek the Holy Spirit's help in conforming you into the image of his son. That's an application. Here's the fourth, that we need to be future-oriented people, future-oriented. The day of Christ that it's mentioned here, uh, on which God will bring his work to completion, points us to Christ's second coming, as I said in the beginning of the sermon. Paul points this out most likely. Why? Because remember who he's writing to. They're under severe trials, and he's worried that in the midst of their suffering, they have, may have lost their, their future orientation. Suffering has a way to get you focused immediately on the here and now. I mean, I can't imagine what they were going through. I stubbed my toe, and I'm like, all right, just forget everything else. You know, and I'm focused on me, and, and you know, I want help when I'm sick. It focuses you on here. Paul is saying, look, you, even in the midst of the trials, even in the midst of the suffering, as small or as big as it is, you have to look to the future. You have to set your eyes uh, on the future. He's saying, you are citizens of heaven. In fact, he says that, chapter 3, verse 20. And, and then he says, you're to live the life of heaven here and now. And so a believer must keep their focus on the return of Christ. They must keep it in the forefront of their mind. We must live our lives daily looking to that future hope. As I said before, if, if you're consumed with what's going on in the here and now, if you look at the politics of our day or the things going on in our country, around the world, if you look at your own life, any of these things, they can consume you and you can lose your focus. Paul's saying, look, keep your eye on the ball. It may get difficult. In fact, it has. Keep your eye on the ball. It's looking to Christ, looking to him and waiting for his return. One writer said, believers in Christ are people of the future. A sure future that has already begun in the present. And to lose this future orientation is to lose too much. That's how we begin to fall. And so in summary, we can say that as believers, we're to be a thankful fellowship in Christ. We're to be a joy-filled fellowship in Christ. We're to be a gospel-oriented fellowship in Christ. We are an eternally secure fellowship in Christ. We're to be a divinely transforming fellowship in Christ. And we're to be a future-focused fellowship in Christ. That's what Paul is saying here and why he gives thanks. Well, let me close by addressing those who don't know where you stand. You're not sure. Maybe you're unsure of the gospel Maybe you're unsure if you have gospel priorities in your life or, and they're not your priorities as you hear them here. Maybe you've never felt confident that God began a good work in you in the first place. What would I say to you? Well, let me ask you a question. Look at verse 3. This is what I would say. Are you able to say with the Apostle Paul, I thank my God? It's my God. You know, a lot of people say, ah, oh, thank God. This is my God. Are you able to make it personal? Maybe that's where you need to begin. That's where you need to start. You need to begin by humbly submitting yourself to Christ. Look into his death on the cross as the surety of your salvation. Know this. Jesus hung on the cross crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
so that you could cry out, my God, my God, please forgive me. Please forgive me. See, if you do that, you can know for certain that he will answer. If you look to Jesus Christ and him alone, to his salvation that is offered in Christ, you can be assured that he will say to you, you are forgiven. That I began a good work and I'll finish that work. See, Christ's death means God will accept your cry of repentance and, and receive you into fellowship with himself. And so don't leave here this morning. Uh, don't turn off the stream if that's what you're uh, doing this morning uh, without first making your relationship with Christ personal, with God personal. My God, don't leave here without thanking God for the salvation that is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray now. Father, we hear these words and we pray that, Lord, we would have grateful hearts, that we'd be thankful for the work of the gospel in our lives and in the lives of our brothers and sisters, and that, Lord, for those who are unsure, I pray, Lord, that now, now would be the time that you do that work in their heart that they may believe and have the security that Christ will return for them. In Jesus' name, amen.